Part three of the Light Princess from the Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Part three of the Light Princess from the Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald. CHAPTER Ten, LOOK AT THE MOON Early the next morning the prince set out to look for something to eat, which he soon found at a forester's hut, where for many following days he was supplied with all that a brave prince could consider necessary. And having plenty to keep him alive for the present, he would not think of wants not yet in existence. Whenever care intruded, this prince always bowed him out in the most princely manner. When he returned from his breakfast to his watch-cave, he saw the princess was already floating about in the lake, attended by the king or queen, whom he knew by their crowns, and a great company in lovely little boats, with canopies of all the colours of the rainbow, and flags and streamers of a great many more. It was a very bright day, and soon the prince, burned up with the heat, began to long for the cold water and the cool princess but he had to endure till twilight, for the boats had provisions on board, and it was not till the sun went down that the gay party began to vanish. Boat after boat drew away to the shore, following that of the king and queen, till only one, apparently the princess's own boat, remained. But she did not want to go home even yet, and the prince thought he saw her order the boat to the shore without her. At all events it rowed away. And now, of all the radiant company, only one white speck remained. Then the prince began to sing, and this is what he sang. Lady fair, swan white, lift thine eyes, banish night by the might of thine eyes. Snowy arms, oars of snow, o'er her hither, plashing low, soft and slow, o'er her hither. Stream behind her o'er the lake, radiant whiteness. In her wake, following, following for her sake, radiant whiteness. Cling about her, waters blue, part not from her, but renew cold and true kisses round her. Lap me round, waters sad, that have left her. Make me glad, for ye had kissed her, ere ye left her. Before he had finished his song, the princess was just under the place where he sat, and looking up to find him. Her ears had led her truly. "'Would you like a fall, princess?' said the prince, looking down. "'Ah, there you are. Yes, if you please, prince,' said the princess, looking up. "'How do you know I'm a prince, princess?' said the prince. "'Because you were a very nice young man, prince,' said the princess. "'Come up then, princess.' "'Fetch me, prince.' The prince took off his scarf, then his sword-belt, then his tunic, and tied them all together, and let them down. But the line was far too short. He unwound his turban, and added it to the rest, when it was all but long enough, and his purse completed it. The princess just managed to lay hold of the knot of money, 
and was beside him in a moment. This rock was much higher than the other, and the splash and the dive were tremendous. The princess was in ecstasies of delight, and their swim was delicious. Night after night they met, and swam about in the dark, clear lake, where such was the prince's gladness that, whether the princess's way of looking at things infected him, or he was actually getting light-headed, he often fancied that he was swimming in the sky instead of the lake. But when he talked about being in heaven, the princess laughed at him dreadfully. When the moon came, she brought them fresh pleasure. Everything looked strange and new in her light, with an old, withered, yet unfading newness. When the moon was nearly full, one of their great delights was to dive deep in the water, and then, turning round, look up through it at the great blot of light, close above them, shimmering and trembling and wavering, spreading and contracting, seeming to melt away, and again grow solid. Then they would shoot up through the blot, and lo, there was the moon, far off, clear and steady and cold and very lovely, at the bottom of a deeper and bluer lake than theirs, as the princess said. The prince soon found out that, while in the water, the princess was very like other people. And besides this, she was not so forward in her questions or pert in her replies at sea as on shore. Neither did she laugh so much, and when she did laugh, it was more gently. She seemed altogether more modest and maidenly in the water than out of it. But when the prince, who had really fallen in love when he fell in the lake, began to talk to her about love, she always turned her head towards him and laughed. After a while she began to look puzzled, as if she were trying to understand what he meant, but could not, revealing a notion that he might mean something. But as soon as ever she left the lake she was so altered that the prince said to himself, if I marry her, I see no help for it. We must turn merman and mermaid, and go out to sea at once. Chapter 11 Hiss The princess's pleasure in the lake had grown to a passion, and she could scarcely bear to be out of it for an hour. Imagine, then, her consternation, when, diving with the prince one night, a sudden suspicion seized her that the lake was not so deep as it used to be. The prince could not imagine what had happened. She shot to the surface, and without a word swam at full speed towards the higher side of the lake. He followed, begging to know if she was ill or what was the matter. She never turned her head or took the smallest notice of his question. Arrived at the shore, she coasted the rocks with minute inspection but she was not able to come to a conclusion, for the moon was very small, and so she could not see well. She turned, therefore, and swam home, without saying a word to explain her conduct to the prince, of whose presence she seemed no longer conscious. He withdrew to his cave in great perplexity and distress. Next day she made many observations, which, alas, strengthened her fears. She saw that the banks were too dry, and that the grass on the shore and the trailing plants on the rocks were withering away. 
she caused marks to be made along the borders, and examined them day after day in all directions of the wind, till at last the horrible idea became a certain fact, that the surface of the lake was slowly sinking. The poor princess nearly went out of the little mind she had. It was awful to her to see the lake, which she loved more than any living thing, lie dying before her eyes. It sank away, slowly vanishing. The tops of rocks that had never been seen till now began to appear far down in the clear water. Before long they were dry in the sun. It was fearful to think of the mud that would soon lie there, baking and festering, full of lovely creatures dying, and ugly creatures coming to life, like the unmaking of a world. And how hot the sun would be without any lake! She could not bear to swim in it any more, and began to pine away. Her life seemed bound up with it, and ever as the lake sank she pined. People said she would not live an hour after the lake was gone. But she never cried. Proclamation was made to all the kingdom that whosoever should discover the cause of the lake's decrease would be rewarded after a princely fashion. Humdrum and Copykeg applied themselves to their physics and metaphysics, but in vain. Not even they could suggest a cause. Now, the fact was that the old princess was at the root of the mischief. When she heard that her niece found more pleasure in the water than anyone else out of it, she went into a rage, and cursed herself for her want of foresight. But, said she, I will soon set all right. The king and the people shall die of thirst, their brains shall boil and frizzle in their skulls before I lose my revenge. And she laughed a ferocious laugh that made the hairs on the back of her black cat stand erect with terror. Then she went to an old chest in the room, and opening it, took out what looked like a piece of dried seaweed. This she threw into a tub of water. Then she threw some powder into the water, and stirred it with her bare arm, muttering over it words of hideous sound, and yet more hideous import. Then she set the tub aside, and took from the chest a huge bunch of rusty keys that clattered in her shaking hands. Then she sat down and proceeded to oil them all. Before she had finished, out from the tub, the water of which had kept on a slow motion ever since she had ceased stirring it, came the head and half the body of a huge grey snake. But the witch did not look round. It grew out of the tub, waving itself backwards and forwards with a slow horizontal motion till it reached the princess. When it laid its head upon her shoulder and gave a low hiss in her ear, she started, but with joy, and seeing the head resting on her shoulder, drew it towards her and kissed it. Then she drew it all out of the tub and wound it round her body. It was one of those dreadful creatures which few have ever beheld, the white snakes of darkness. Then she took the keys and went down to her cellar, and as she unlocked the door she said to herself, This is worth living for. Locking the door behind her, she descended a few steps into the cellar, and crossing it, unlocked another door into a dark, narrow passage, 
She locked this also behind her, and descended a few more steps. If any one had followed the witch-princess, he would have heard her unlock exactly one hundred doors, and descend a few steps after unlocking each. When she had unlocked the last, she entered a vast cave, the roof of which was supported by huge natural pillars of rock. Now this roof was the underside of the bottom of the lake. Then she untwined the snake from her body, and held it by the tail high above her. The hideous creature stretched up its head towards the roof of the cavern, which it was just able to reach, and it began to move its head backwards and forwards with a slow oscillating motion, as if looking for something. At the same moment the witch began to walk round and round the cavern, coming nearer to the centre every circuit, while the head of the snake described the same path over the roof that she did over the floor, for she kept holding it up, and still it kept slowly oscillating. Round and round the cavern they went, ever lessening the circuit, till at last the snake made a sudden dart and clung to the roof with its mouth. "'That's right, my beauty,' cried the princess. "'Drain it dry!' She let it go, left it hanging, and sat down on a great stone with her black cat, which had followed her all round the cave by her side. Then she began to knit and mutter awful words. The snake hung like a huge leech, sucking at the stone. The cat stood with his back arched and his tail like a piece of cable, looking up at the snake, and the old woman sat and knitted and muttered. Seven days and seven nights they remained thus, when suddenly the serpent dropped from the roof as if exhausted, and shriveled up till it was again like a piece of dried seaweed. The witch started to her feet, picked it up, put it in her pocket, and looked up at the roof. One drop of water was trembling on the spot where the snake had been sucking. As soon as she saw that, she turned and fled, followed by her cat. Shutting the door in a terrible hurry, she locked it, and having muttered some frightful words, sped to the next, which also she locked and muttered over, and so with all the hundred doors, till she arrived in her own cellar. There she sat down on the floor, ready to faint, but listening with malicious delight to the rushing of the water, which she could hear distinctly through all the hundred doors. But this was not enough. Now that she had tasted revenge, she lost her patience. Without further measures the lake would be too long in disappearing. So, the next night, with the last shred of the dying old moon rising, she took some of the water in which she had revived the snake, put it in a bottle, and set out, accompanied by her cat. Before morning she had made the entire circuit of the lake, muttering fearful words as she crossed every stream, and casting into it some of the water out of her bottle. When she had finished the circuit, she muttered yet again, and flung a handful of water towards the moon. Thereupon every spring in the country ceased to throb and bubble, dying away like the pulse of a dying man. The next day there was no sound of falling water to be heard along the borders of the lake, 
The very courses were dry, and the mountains showed no silvery streaks down their dark sides. And not alone had the fountains of Mother Earth ceased to flow, for all the babies throughout the country were crying dreadfully, only without tears. Chapter 12. Where is the Prince? Never since the night when the princess left him so abruptly had the prince had a single interview with her. He had seen her once or twice in the lake, but as far as he could discover she had not been in it any more at night. He had sat and sung and looked in vain for his naiad, while she, like a true naiad, was wasting away with her lake, sinking as it sank, withering as it dried. When at length he discovered the change that was taking place in the level of the water, he was in great alarm and perplexity. He could not tell whether the lake was dying because the lady had forsaken it, or whether the lady would not come because the lake had begun to sink. But he resolved to know so much at least. He disguised himself, and going to the palace, requested to see the Lord Chamberlain. His appearance at once gained his request and the Lord Chamberlain, being a man of some insight, perceived that there was more in the Prince's solicitation than met the ear. He felt likewise that no one could tell whence a solution to the present difficulties might arise, so he granted the Prince's prayer to be made shoe-black to the Princess. It was rather cunning in the Prince to request such an easy post, for the Princess could not possibly soil as many shoes as other Princesses. He soon learned all that could be learned about the princess. He went nearly distracted, but after roaming about the lake for days, and diving in every depth that remained, all that he could do was to put an extra polish on the dainty pair of shoes that was never called for. For the princess kept her room, with the curtains drawn to shut out the dying lake, but she could not shut it out of her mind for a moment. It haunted her imagination, so that she felt as if the lake were her soul, drying up within her, first to mud, then to madness and death. She thus brooded over the change, with all its dreadful accompaniments, till she was nearly distracted. As for the prince, she had forgotten him. However much she had enjoyed his company in the water, she did not care for him without it but she seemed to have forgotten her father and mother too. The lake went on sinking. Small slimy spots began to appear which glittered steadily amidst the changeful shine of the water. These grew to broad patches of mud, which widened and spread, with rocks here and there, and floundering fishes and crawling eels swarming. The people went everywhere catching these, and looking for anything that might have dropped from the royal boats. At length the lake was all but gone, only a few of the deepest pools remaining unexhausted. It happened one day that a party of youngsters found themselves on the brink of one of those pools, in the very centre of the lake. It was a rocky basin of considerable depth. Looking in, they saw at the bottom something that shone yellow in the sun. A little boy jumped in and dived for it. It was a plate of gold covered with writing. They carried it to the king. On one side of it stood these words, Death alone from death can save. Love is death, and so is brave. Love can fill the deepest grave, 
Love loves on beneath the wave. Now, this was enigmatical enough to the king and courtiers, but the reverse of the plate explained it a little. Its writing amounted to this. If the lake should disappear, they must find the hole through which the water ran, but it would be useless to try to stop it by any ordinary means. There was but one effectual mode. The body of a living man alone could staunch the flow. The man must give himself of his own will, and the lake must take his life as it filled. Otherwise the offering would be of no avail. If the nation could not provide one hero, it was time it should perish. CHAPTER Thirteen. HERE I AM. This was a very disheartening revelation to the king, not that he was unwilling to sacrifice a subject, but that he was hopeless of finding a man willing to sacrifice himself. No time was to be lost, however, for the princess was lying motionless on her bed, and taking no nourishment but lake-water, which was, now, none of the best. Therefore the king caused the contents of the wonderful plate of gold to be published throughout the country. No one, however, came forward. The prince, having gone several days' journey into the forest to consult a hermit whom he had met there on his way to Lagerbell, knew nothing of the oracle till his return. When he had acquainted himself with all the particulars, he sat down and thought, "'She will die if I don't do it, and life would be nothing to me without her, so I shall lose nothing by doing it.' and life will be as pleasant to her as ever, for she will soon forget me, and there will be so much more beauty and happiness in the world. To be sure, I shall not see it. Here the poor prince gave a sigh. How lovely the lake will be in the moonlight, with that glorious creature sporting in it like a wild goddess. It is rather hard to be drowned by inches, though. Let me see. That will be seventy inches of me to drown. Here he tried to laugh, but could not. The longer the better. However, he resumed, for can I not bargain that the princess shall be beside me all the time? So I shall see her once more, kiss her, perhaps, who knows, and die looking in her eyes. It will be no death. At least I shall not feel it. And to see the lake filling for the beauty again. All right, I'm ready. He kissed the princess's boot, laid it down, and hurried to the king's apartment. But, feeling, as he went, that anything sentimental would be disagreeable, he resolved to carry off the whole affair with nonchalance. So he knocked at the door of the king's counting-house, where it was all but a capital crime to disturb him. When the king heard the knock, he started up, and opened the door in a rage. Seeing only the shoe-black, he drew his sword. This, I am sorry to say, was his usual mode of asserting his regality when he thought his dignity was in danger. But the prince was not in the least alarmed. "'Please, Your Majesty, I'm your butler,' said he. "'My butler? You lying rascal! What do you mean? I mean, I will cork your big bottle.' "'Is the fellow mad?' bawled the king, raising the point of his sword. "'I will put a stopper—a plug—what do you call it—in your leaky lake, Grand Monarch,' said the prince." The king was in such a rage that before he could speak he had time to cool, and to reflect that it would be a great waste 
to kill the only man who was willing to be useful in the present emergency, seeing that in the end the insolent fellow would be as dead as if he had died by his majesty's own hand. "'Oh!' said he at last, putting up his sword with difficulty. It was so long. "'I'm obliged to you, young fool. Take a glass of wine?' "'No, thank you,' replied the prince. "'Very well,' said the king. "'Would you like to run and see your parents before you make your experiment?' "'No, thank you,' said the prince. "'Then we will go and look for the hole at once,' said His Majesty, and proceeded to call some attendants. "'Stop! Please, Your Majesty, I have a condition to make,' interposed the prince. "'What?' exclaimed the king. "'A condition? And with me? How dare you!' "'As you please,' returned the prince coolly. "'I wish Your Majesty a good morning.' "'You wretch! I will have you put in a sack and stuck in the hole.' "'Very well, Your Majesty,' replied the Prince, becoming a little more respectful, lest the wrath of the King should deprive him of the pleasure of dying for the Princess. "'But what good will that do, Your Majesty? Please to remember that the Oracle says the victim must offer himself.' "'Well, you have offered yourself,' retorted the King. "'Yes, upon one condition.' "'Condition again!' roared the King, once more drawing his sword. Be gone! Somebody else will be glad enough to take the honour off your shoulders. Your Majesty knows it will not be easy to get another to take my place. Well, what is your condition? growled the King, feeling that the Prince was right. Only this, replied the Prince, that, as I must on no account die before I am fairly drowned, and the waiting will be rather wearisome, the Princess, your daughter, shall go with me, feed me with her own hands, and look at me now and then, to comfort me. For you must confess it is rather hard. As soon as the water is up to my eyes, she may go and be happy, and forget her poor shoeblack. Here the prince's voice faltered, and he very nearly grew sentimental, in spite of his resolution. "'Why didn't you tell me before what your condition was? Such a fuss about nothing!' exclaimed the king. "'Do you grant it?' persisted the prince. "'Yes, of course I do,' replied the king. "'Very well. I am ready. "'Go and have some dinner, then, while I set my people to find the place.' The king ordered out his guards, and gave directions to the officers to find the hole in the lake at once. So the bed of the lake was marked out in divisions, and thoroughly examined, and in an hour or so the hole was discovered. It was in the middle of a stone, near the centre of the lake, in the very pool where the golden plate had been found. It was a three-cornered hole of no great size. There was water all round the stone, but very little was flowing through the hole. End of Part 3 of The Light Princess